In the 1960 Olympic Games at Rome, an obscure Ethiopian by the name of Abibi Bakila captured gold in the men's marathon. The collective response of the track and field world seemed to be, what on earth is an Ethiopian doing in a men's marathon? For decades, the world's premier long-distance runners had come from the cooler climates of uh, northern Europe, the British Isles, Scandinavia, Scandinavia, the uh, Soviet Union was very powerful in those times. History seemed to have long confirmed that the equatorial climate and impoverished conditions of East Africa was no recipe for producing great runners, great long-distance runners in particular. So Bakila's victory was widely dismissed as a fluke. What no one understood at the time was that his victory started a revolution. This was 1960. Just eight years later, 1968, East Africans in those Olympics won nine medals in long-distance running. Three Kenyans captured gold at those games in Mexico City, including the most inspiring victory by Kipkoji Kano. When Kano arrived at the games, he was suffering from a gallbladder infection, but he ran anyway. He ran the 10,000-meter race, which is a long ways to run on an infected bladder to begin with. It's just a long ways to run, period. But he ran that race, became so overcome by his ailment that he collapsed just a few just a short ways, I think it was two laps before he collapsed and was disqualified. But he ran again in those same races. He ran the 5,000 meter race and took silver medal. But the gallbladder infection raged and so the doctors sidelined him for his final race, the 1,500 meter race. Convalescing in the athlete's village, Kano decided he simply could not disappoint his fellow Kenyans. He got a cab, got in the cab and headed toward the Olympic Stadium. The cab ran into a traffic jam one mile from the stadium. He knew he'd never make the race unless he did one thing. He got out of the cab and he ran to the stadium, passing all the cars parked on the street in the traffic jam. He entered the stadium, loosened and warmed up and ready to go, and came to the starting blocks against a very significant opponent. One of those running this 1500 meter race was Jim Ryan, who was a world record holder in the 1500 meters. Not only that, but he had not been beaten for over three years. And Kano, with infected gallbladder, entered that race and won by 20 meters. It was a massive victory. The thunderous response at Rock Mexico's Olympic Stadium did not begin to compare with the fire Kano's victory ignited in his fledgling, impoverished homeland of Kenya, particularly among Kano's Kalenjin tribe. Since that day, long-distance running has been a path to glory among the Kalenjin tribe. According to researcher John Manners, 75% of Kenya's top runners come from this single tribe. 
From 1987 to 1997, some of the research that he did found that these tribal runners captured 40% of the top international honors in men's long distance running, including placing first and second in the Boston Marathon and placing 12 out of the top 18 runners in that event. Manners writes of that 1996 accomplishment, I contend that this record marks the greatest geographic concentration of achievement in the annals of sport. To this day, you find a major long-distance race anywhere on earth, and you can pretty much guarantee that vying for the top place will be a Kenyan. Following the inspiring lead of Bakilla, Kano, and so many others that have come since them, this backward, thinly populated East African nation has become a world-dominant force in long-distance running. What an inspiring story that is. It kind of makes life in suburban Minneapolis look pretty dull, doesn't it, when you think of it. But I'd like, I say all of this to make this statement and I'd like you to hear me carefully. If we could blow away the smog of our secular culture, if we could for a moment see our lives as God sees them, we would fully realize that as born-again followers of Jesus Christ, we are all long-distance runners in a far more glorious race than any athlete on earth has ever run. As a spirit-baptized follower of Jesus Christ, you labor in far more glorious company, and you are running for a far more glorious prize. Now, there are probably not too many of us that were thinking about that as we walked in this morning. The songs have been cal calculated to help us to see that race and to realize what we are in fact doing here but we probably don't come walking in feeling that way. If truth be told, you may have come here today discouraged. You don't feel like you really measure up to God's calling. There are troubles that seem to overwhelm your faith. It might be money, it might be relationships, it might be trials, suffering, it may be sin itself. But whatever the circumstances, there really isn't much of a fire burning in your soul for God. Perhaps I speak even to some who say, I'm really not sure that the Christian life is worth it, honestly. You're downright tired of the Christian race. Tired of running, tired of failing, tired of falling short, tired of the problems, tired perhaps of standing for the truth against the strong current of a world moving in the opposite direction. Wherever you are, Let's sit down for a few minutes together today like an exhausted, discouraged runner training in the highlands overlooking the Great Rift Valley of Kenya. Let's sit down for a while together in the heat and let's draw inspiration for the race that is before us as we look at our past and as we remember what we are doing in this life. I invite you to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 for our counsel. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. <clears throat> we read here from this great text that we know well. Therefore, Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded 
by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This passage encourages us as entrance in the Christian race to run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And I'd like to dissect this passage today in order that we might carefully consider this calling. In order to do so, I'd like to start first of all by giving extended context here to this passage, which is essential for us to understand it well, I believe. We know the recipient's ordeal, I'm sure, to some degree, perhaps for some this is new territory, but Hebrews is addressed to a group of Jewish Christians, perhaps a church, we don't know that. But they are believers in Jesus who are well grounded in the Old Testament text of Scripture. In fact, they have been Christians for some time, according to chapter 5 and verse 12. They were, however, a group under serious pressure. Under the strain of social ostracism, having suffered injustices for their faith in Jesus, their faith had weakened. They were spiritually tired. Their enthusiasm had grown cold, and some were apparently in danger of walking away from Jesus altogether, returning to what appeared to be the safer confines of Judaism. Now, the author takes up a very carefully worked argument with these believers. He pens a passionate appeal to these Hebrew Christians not to abandon their faith in Jesus. His argument goes something like this. Let's remember... Let's remember what he says and put it together to remember our doctrine and the foundation on which we build our faith. He says this, God has revealed his truth to his people in many ways through the centuries. The supernatural realm does communicate with the natural realm, and God has spoken. But in these last days, God revealed himself to his people in the person of his incarnate son, Jesus Christ. This same Jesus suffered and died for sinners, chapter 2, verse 9, in order to free his people from death, verse 14. Having accomplished this redemptive sacrifice, Jesus now reigns in heaven's, on heaven's throne, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father in a place of authority and victory. This Jesus is superior to any mediator or prophet or ritual system God has ever set or designed to draw His people to Himself. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Mosaic system. Jesus is the great and final high priest, the ultimate sacrifice for sin, the mediator of a new and superior covenant between God and His people. In fact, the entire Old Testament ritual system was a shadow of the reality that is Jesus' priestly reign, His once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. So here's the challenge to these believers. In light of the truth about who Jesus is, says the author, you are in grave danger. In light of the fact that Jesus is the final 
and fully sufficient high priest and savior, if you turn your back on Jesus, you turn your back on God's only plan of salvation for this day. So repeatedly, intermittently throughout the book, the author warns his readers to keep trusting in Jesus. You remember that, I think last summer as Pastor Pratt brought us through many of those warning passages that keep coming through the book of Hebrews. And so passionate is this author about the danger of these believers, the danger of leaving off the race, the danger of giving up, the danger of standing off to the side and letting the race go on by. So passionate is he about this. He does not blush to warn them pointedly, I quote, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He doesn't back down and make sure that he strokes their psyche. He says, you're going to meet God, and you better be ready. On that grave note, chapter 10 and verse 31, the author moves into this encouraging passage that we have read, that Pastor Pratt read to you earlier here from Hebrews 11. The author does so by reminding them that they run the race of faith that so many great people of God have run before them. Notice Hebrews 11 and verse 13. All these people were living still by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. So remember, runners. The victory, the glory, the prize doesn't come while you're running. It comes at the end of it. Keep going will be his challenge. And it reminds us then that we have this great heritage. We run in a great company and we should be inspired then to run with similar courage and perseverance. The main imperative then after this great chapter of of faith is found in chapter 12. And at the end of verse 1, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. As we work our way slowly through this text, I'd like to offer three exhortations which give us instruction concerning this race of faith. And these instructions are tethered to this primary command. This primary directive. Let us run with perseverance. We must continue the Christian walk without giving up. And we must continue persevering. The first point here deals with preparation in verse 1 of chapter 12. We must throw off every hindrance. When it comes to how to prepare for this race, we must throw off every hindrance. It says there, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That's all, in a sense, preparatory for this command to run the race of perseverance. What we find here, first of all, is our motivation. This great cloud of witnesses is the vast throng of believers who have persevered in the faith before us. They surround us, so to speak, in a great amphitheater. But we notice here they're not merely spectators, are they? They are witnesses. Their function is to bear witness to us about something that they have experienced before us. These are the people of God in 
Hebrews 11, who were tortured and jeered and flogged. These are the people of God, imprisoned and stoned and sawn in two and mauled by wild animals, destitute and homeless. These are the great company of faith conquerors of whom the world was not worthy. Verse 38 of chapter 11. While we feebly struggle on, did you hear that phrase in that great hymn? For all the saints, while we feebly struggle on, they in glory shine. And they assemble assemble around us today, so to speak, lending their thunderous roar of testimony. It's not simply that they're up there with spy glasses looking down on us. It is rather that they are up there saying to us by their life and by their example, it will be worth it all when you see Jesus. Keep running, believer. Do not shrink back. Do not give up. Jesus reigns, and and you will triumph in Him. Run with perseverance. So Christian brothers and sisters, we have the greatest heritage of any people on earth. We need to think of that. And that thought alone should ignite a fire in our soul. But you know, we can read biographies of great Christians. We can respect the godly people that we know. And we can profit absolutely nothing from it until we begin to make the choices that they made. We can pride ourselves in knowing all about what this Christian or that Christian did through time We can thank God every day of our life for the people that He's placed in our life that we can look up to who are people of faith and godliness. But until we begin to live like they lived, it's not going to do a lot of good. And that leads to the second point of moral responsibility. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. So what? So let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That's how they ran this race. We must do the same as we prepare to enter it, as we, as we prepare for it. We must throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Ancient runners would strip off their loose flowing robes and would run essentially naked In like manner, we're called here to set aside every hindrance and every sin in order to run the greatest of all races uninhibited. And we must then ask ourselves a question here at this place. Is there a habit of life? Is there a relationship? Is there a thought pattern? Is there a failed responsibility that is weighing you down spiritually? We need to set it aside. Is sin hindering you in the race of faith? I think probably this is debatable, but it says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. It probably just one statement put two ways. Some interpret the sin that so easily entangles as some personal pet sin, or perhaps in the context, which would I think be better, the sin of apostasy with the Hebrews. But I, I don't know that we need, particularly as we read this text, to limit it to one sin. It is perhaps better to see here a reference to sin in general. Motivated by the people of faith who have gone before us, we too should strip away sin so as to run the race of faith without restraint. The Millers took a trip to the park the other day, and as we were getting back in the van after playing some 
games, I can't remember what we did, but threw a football around or something out at the park. We were getting back into the van parked right by the basketball court. And we saw a young man, probably in high school, who was, well, let's just say that his uh, belt line was south of the border by quite a ways. If you've seen that style, the boxers showing and way down here is his belt. And we were trying our best not to laugh as we watched this kid trying to play basketball with his pants down there. I mean, to keep him up, he had to walk around like this, you know, and then he's trying to shoot baskets, and it was just the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen. I think sometimes we as Christians have a lot more in common with that young man than we think. Maybe we wear our pants where they ought to be, at least for utility, if not for style. But you know, that's a real live picture of what sin does in our Christian walk. We're trying to get in a race and to run, and we've got to run like this to keep our pants up. Because we've got a sin that's dragging us down. So in today's context, perhaps the writer would say, pull your pants up. But make the adjustment the point is, in that context, to take the long flowing robe. You can't run with a robe getting all tangled around your legs. That's a picture of sin, and it is a problem that we have as Christians to live in sin in such a ridiculous way than to try to run the Christian life when we are playing around with things that we know keep us from God. And we revere, we respect the people through the centuries who have lived in faith, we thank God for them, but we don't do what they did. We think somehow we can sort of shuffle along the path with sin hanging around our middle somewhere. Set the sin aside, and then you're ready to run. The preparation, we're motivated by those who have gone before. We lay aside every hindering sin and then secondly, we enter on to the discussion of the mission itself. At the end of verse 1, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This is the, our mission, to run with perseverance. This phrase, phrase says much, does it not, about the nature of the Christian life. The call to run implies that following Jesus is a progressive undertaking. It is a journey with a beginning and an end. It is a race that you may finish well. It is a race that you may not finish at all. The call to persevere in this race, from the Greek word agona, to struggle, it indicates that the journey will be difficult. It implies that we are going to want to quit, or at least to slack off and to coast. That was the problem the Hebrew believers are facing. They'd become sluggish and discouraged on their journey of faith. They even flirted with the idea of pulling out of the race altogether. Keep on running, cheers the author. Keep on running the race of faith. You know, that is a cheer that we need to hear in our assembly. That needs to be heard in your Christian home. The cheer to keep on running. We need to encourage each other. 
We need to bury, if there's vestiges of it in our homes, if there's vestiges of it in our church, we need to bury the spiritual competitive spirit. Where we judge ourselves among ourselves and say, I'm further along than that person, or how could they possibly do that? Or to stand by and feel smug that we've made such accomplishments in the Christian walk. There isn't one of us that's anything. But what we need to do is to encourage one another to keep running. To be a church that encourages one another along. Perhaps someone is struggling. Perhaps they are walking off on the side with their pants too low. Perhaps there's sin in their life that's bringing them down. We need to be an assembly that pulls them up. That encourages them along. And that's what needs to take place in our homes. That we would encourage each other to continue to run the race. Now sometimes that encouragement takes a firm word. Most times I think it takes a word of great joy. Of saying that I'm on your side. Continue on. Press on. Move forward. May we be a church like that. May our homes be a church like that. Or our, our homes be a place like that. Perseverance. Let me stop for a moment and read a couple of statements that seek to define this word. What does it mean? What does perseverance look like? It is, writes one, the spirit which can bear things, not simply with resignation, but with blazing hope. It is not the spirit which sits statically enduring in one place, but the spirit which bears things because it knows that these things are leading to a goal of glory. Another writes, it is a determination, unhurrying and yet undelaying, which goes steadily on and refuses to be deflected. Obstacles do not daunt it, and discouragements do not take its hope away. It is the steadfast endurance which carries on until the end, until it gets there. It just doesn't quit. I've lost a lot of the details, but I'll never forget the Kenyan, Haile Geber Selassie, who ran a race somewhere some time ago that I watched and have no idea of all the details, but I think perhaps a 1,500 meter race or longer. But he was running against his great Ethiopian rival, I believe it was, and they ran around that track, pretty much buried everybody else pretty early in the race, but together it was clear they were going to fight to the last to see who would win. And this great Kenyan runner that so many look to now in his nation won the race. He led that race for one step. He never led that race until the final step. It just seemed impossible that he would do it. But he never quit, even to the last step, and he won on that step. I've never seen anything like it in my life. I would believe that it could not even be staged. But I watched it in front of my eyes. Actually happen. One step. You persevere. You carry on. You never give up, says the author to us, says God to us. We run with perseverance. And notice it's the race marked out for us. As disciples of Jesus, we do not chart our own 
course through life. We are called to run the race of faith that providence and God's word mark out for us. But how do you do that? We get tired. We get confused. We're worn out sometimes. There you are in this great Olympic stadium before an innumerable company of witnesses. There you are running in this lane that's marked out for you. Your feet are slamming against the ground. Your legs feel like a million pounds. You don't even put forth the energy to keep your lips and your jowls from flapping free in the air. And you are exhausted and you just say, give me a cause. What do I do? How do I keep going? Verse 2, the preparation, the motivation, here's the strategy. The strategy, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. That's the strategy. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author speaks here of a steady concentration upon Jesus, a strong fixed gaze. We're to lock our eyes on Jesus and to chase Him. So Christian, just as you have no right to define the boundaries of your race, so you have no right to be whoever you want to be. Our joy and our responsibility is to emulate Jesus. What matter to Him is to matter to us. The priorities and convictions of his life are to be ours. He is our prototype. He is our leader. We're to lock in and follow. And I ask this pointed question and ask that you take it home and sit on it. Would those who know you best say, there is a man or woman, there is a young person whose eyes are fixed on Jesus? Does your life play out in such a way that it is clear that Jesus is your leader? That you follow him? Now, there's very careful rationale for fixing our eyes on Jesus here in this text. And let's think about it. That it might motivate us further to in fact follow him. It says there in verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Here's reason number one concerning Jesus that we should follow Him. Jesus is the beginning and the end of our faith. He is the trailblazer, so to speak, of our faith. A couple of points from the Greek text here that are essential, I think. Jesus is not the author of our faith, the Greek text would say. Here we have the author and perfecter of our faith. Literally, the reading is the perfecter of the faith. And the Greek is not so much the author of the faith as it is the leader or the champion. The idea of a leader who opens up a way for his followers. Not the author who sat down and penned a story, but the one who goes before, who blazes the trail. That's why we look to him. Jesus is the beginning of our faith. He's the trailblazer. He's secondly the summation of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who brings faith to its destined conclusion. There is a day coming when faith will end. A day when Jesus sums up the faith in himself as we stand before him in glory. So since Jesus is both the beginning and the end of the faith, where else could we possibly look to run this race? 
He is the beginning and the end of our faith. Look to Him. Secondly, He displayed the ultimate act of faith. The next phrase there in verse 2, "...who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame." He endured the cross. That's the same word translated persevere in verse 1. Jesus endured ridicule. He endured abandonment. He endured torture. What motivated Jesus to endure the cross? It was the joy that was set before Him. Jesus' determined faith was locked in on the finish line. He endured the cross, fueled by the anticipation of the joy of God's approval of the cross. I mean, think of it when we look in real terms at the life of, at this universe and what's really real. Kip Kano endured a gallbladder infection and won the 1,500-meter race. That's amazing. Jesus endured the cross. And he won the right to sit on the throne of the universe. Nothing compares to that. Our call then is to endure whatever we must face to finish our race. That is the positive side. Negatively, Jesus maintained this perspective by scorning the shame. This is not some type of a hostile, bitter attitude that says, I don't care what anybody does to me. This is the attitude of the marathon runner, the attitude the marathon runner takes with respect to pain. Jesus refused to be overwhelmed by pain or shame. He didn't look at it. He looked at the glory that was ahead, not at the pain of the race. He's the beginning and the end of our faith, reason one. He displayed the ultimate act of faith, reason two. And thirdly, Jesus won the ultimate reward of faith. The end of verse 2, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When we look to Jesus, we see not merely a man who won a gold medal. We see one who was awarded the throne of the universe. There's no one else to follow. He is the best of all runners. This is the one whose example we must chase. That's the rationale concerning Jesus. There's a rationale for following him concerning us. And that is verse 3. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Is your faith weak today? Do you feel like that runner that's running along and is beginning to ask, I don't know why to go, I, I should go on. I don't know how I can. We will not grow weary and lose heart if we consider Him who endured. You need to lock in on the suffering of Jesus Christ and to be filled with motivating passion as you consider what He did and follow Him. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, meditating upon His endurance of the cross can inspire us to not grow weary or lose heart. So let's put it together briefly. Think of what we've considered here today. This is just adjustment to try to think right in this world that teaches us to think so wrongly all the time about what matters. Here's what we see. Here is the counsel to us as we sit down for a while and think again about the Christian life. Number one, you have been born again into a noble heritage. The most noble heritage in the history of humanity. Now I know as you labor at work, as you labor at school, 
as you look to uh, the media of this culture to find out what matters to people, I know in all of these contexts, in your neighborhood and the like, that you realize you are a minority. In fact, at times it's not being hidden so carefully that we are a despised minority. Particularly if you believe what the Bible says and stick with it. Well, we may be a small lot. The Kalenjin tribe of Kenya is a tiny people in the world. We may be a small lot. We may even be despised, but our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven where the glorified throngs witness that faith is the ultimate victory. Keep plowing forward. Keep running. The day is coming when the faith will be sight. We have a noble heritage. We secondly are challenged in this passage to throw off sin. Is there a decision that needs to be made in your life today? Perhaps it requires counsel and accountability. Perhaps it requires now a time to do something that you've known for a long while that you've needed to do. You can't run the race with a robe tangled up between your legs. Lay off that sin that God's talking to you now and run with the faithful. As we pray here in a few moments, let's pray for each other. Let's pray for our families. Let's pray for our church. And let's pray for God's people throughout this world that we would lay aside the sins of unfaithfulness that keep us from finishing the race. There's a third thing we find here, and that is this call to run the Christian faith the Christian race with perseverance. Jesus Christ endured the ultimate pain and indignity for us. By enduring the cross, Jesus won the greatest of all victories. This same Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This once bloodied and beaten and despised and rejected and tortured Jesus now reigns. And we have before us the privilege to enter his victory along with the saints of past ages. Did you catch what verse 40 of chapter 11 says? It is an amazing conclusion to that chapter, which actually should probably be concluded with 12.3. But whatever the case, think of verse 40. God had planned something be better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. We will be perfected with, in a unique and final and closing way, with those who have gone before. And we will enter the glorification of Jesus as his people. I was thinking that as we sang again that tremendous hymn, Before the Throne of God Above, the phrase that kept going through my mind is, Who am I? Who am I? That before the throne of God above is one who pleads for me. That God would look on him and punish my sin so that he could pardon me. Who am I? But what a tremendous privilege position we have. Let's run. Let's run with dignity this race before us. And that is the final point here, to follow Jesus. We need to live as he lived, to believe as he believed. 
And the result is that we will not lose heart and give up the race. I think the most discouraging of all thoughts that I ever entertain in this life is to get all focused on me. It's just a pattern and a recipe for discouragement. Our focus needs to be on Jesus Christ. To follow him, to chase him, and to live this life with distinction. Christian, the race of faith is our path to glory. And it's not going to be a simple gold medal that we hang around our necks or lock up somewhere in a safe. It is going to be a glory that shines through us physically forever and ever and ever. Is that worth it? There is nothing that you will face in this life, even if it is torture and death, that will not be worth it all when we shine in glory forever and ever in the presence of our God. Run with perseverance. Don't give up. Encourage one another. And let's carry on for the glory of our Savior who's gone before us. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we need you. We need your strength, your help. We need to focus on Jesus. And I doubt if I'm the only one here to confess my sin that I get my eyes off of him. God, help us bring our eyes back to the one who's run before us. Help us not to look back to what has been disappointing in our own lives so much as to look forward and to know what lies ahead. And help us not get bogged down in comparing ourselves with others, either positively or negatively, but help us to just look to the back of Jesus who runs ahead of us in our lane and to follow him to victory. This Christian race is a marathon. There's so many points where we can get weary. God, you know this about us. But I pray that we will endure and persevere and that your name would be hallowed among us. I pray for this church that whatever takes place in our journey together, that we would hold to the faith, that we would be true to your calling, that we would press on to the end. Help us to do this, Lord God, in your strength and power and how we thank you for Jesus and thank you for all those who have come both before and after him, who were people of deep faith. May we be those people of faith as well. Help us set aside sin. Help us to draw close and to run. God, may we feel your pleasure as we do so. May your name be glorified. May you encourage us with the truth that we can, in fact, do what you've called us to do. Help us to run. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.